Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Are you ready, Mark? Yeah. Your headphones aren't on. Here we go. Yeah. What's up, what's up, what's up? Ho, 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 what's up, what's up? So you're doing this at Christmas? Well, it's not our Christmas show, really, because we've got a show on Christmas Day. Oh, I know. I just wondered why you went ho, ho, ho. Because it's vaguely Christmas. This will have to last people all the way up to. People will be listening to this as they take part in all the Yuletide preparations. Wrapping presents. There'll be people wrapping presents for this. <laughs> well, that is definitely true. And, you know... People feeling exhausted. There'll very probably asleep. be people wrapping presents in the Christmas Day show. Yeah, that's also... How great. do you think the Christmas Day show will go? Well, it's really... it's Because re- we've already done it. I know. That's why I was asking you ironically, but you've just now... Yeah. Well, we've already done it, and it's, you know, it's a very good show. And if you if you want to talk movies on lunchtime on Christmas Day, there is no other place to go, I would suggest, you know. <laughs> if and you want to talk about whaling movies... Well, Ron Howard is always, Day, is always a good always guest. good value. And we play music, and Ron Howard chooses some Christmas music. Yeah. So, actually, I've talked myself into it, and now I think I'm going to be... You're going to down tools, and you're just going to listen to the show. We don't clash with the Queen, do we? No, the Queen's three o'clock, and we're 12 till two? One o'clock. We're no, until three, so fine. we lead up to the we Queen. We lead up to the Queen. We are the Queen's warm-up act. Should have, when we finished the show, we should have said, this has been a something else production. And, Radio now, and now Her Majesty the Queen. Her M the Q. Actually, I'm just going to check that, because now I'll find out that the Queen's speech is actually going to... It's usually three o'clock. Five Live might have put it out some other time. Hang on, Queen's speech. This might need to be tightened. As a man looks something up, can't I can't I can't find it, and I can't be bothered to do it with you being rude to me anyway. Right. Uh, here's... Look, watch us, then watch the Queen. You know what? We'll both be available on iPlayer. Now this email says, "Fair enough, dear Roger and Victor." This is from Chris from Buckinghamshire. Your correspondent on the podcast last week suggested that hearing entertainment-related flight safety announcements would be somewhat off-putting. Yeah. Okay. As a pilot with a generic UK airline, says Chris from Buckinghamshire vaguely, I can reassure him that the safety demo, being a legal requirement, is supposed to be done straight. The only item I think could benefit from the flagship film show touch would be in the bit about what to do with your personal items in an emergency situation. For example, how do you leave your hand baggage behind? You just leave all your hand baggage behind. Very good. Since recent events like the evacuation on the runway at Las Vegas a few months ago would have shown that people can forget or ignore this bit in a crisis, potentially slowing down those behind them. Hello to Jason. So there you go. So that's the only bit that now can safely be included with a, with a hint of wittertainism. Producer Simon is choosing this moment I know, to deliver his Christmas cards and to give me a fork for my lunch. Yeah, do you Can think you he's Ken- just gone out and bought some? Uh, said, yeah, almost certainly, because yeah. you, you and I Ro- gave we out. Gave, our we did. We did. You, know, you notice how we did that? We, yeah, he's been down the BBC shop. He has. This will almost certainly be a desert island. Distance. Let's uh, let's open them on air and find out. Okay. Okay. Let's hang on, and and and, and let's cheap, re- let's read them together to see whether they say the same thing. Okay. Wait, got- wait, 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 wait. We'll do it together. Okay. Yeah. Wait. So hang on. So, got three wise men on the okay. front. So I got three wise men on the front. Front. Okay. So to Mark. And family. To Simon and family. And all together, Simon, Simon Amy, Amy, whoever she is, Victor, Victor whoever he is, and, and Iris. Iris. Is that, and you've got plus signs in Iris, between. Yeah, and the yeah. goldfish. You haven't got a kiss. 
Thankfully not. I haven't got one either. Anyway, that was hastily done. But always, it's it's a very nice moment. Anyway, it's the thought that counts. And all the best to Amy, Victor and Iris, who presumably are stick insects or something like that. Yep. Where was I? Oh, yeah, we've done that. Very good. I'm looking forward to the show, by the way. It's going to be a lot of... A lot of tiptoeing around complicated plot. Yes. We will do our best. But the thing is, if we're genuinely not going to say anything about Star Wars, you know, not to give anything away, there's just going to be a gap. I know. We just go, Star Wars, it's out. There you go. John Piper was a joint winner of the Hilly Fields Junior School Badger Design Competition in 1989 and now contributes this. On the subject of pregnancy-induced lachrymosity syndrome, pills, as highlighted by a listener on the show last week, in relation to a Russell Brand Arthur-based tear spillage, I decided to testify uh, as a witness to the effects of this condition. There are so many adjuncts to this particular complicated illness. In 2005, when my wife and I were still young and unencumbered with cynicism, we decided to take our son, who was nearly three years old at the time, for his first cinema experience. We decided that the Depp Burton bandwagon for that year, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, was a suitable choice. This also happened to be my wife's birthday, so when I glanced at her at the point when Charlie shares his chocolate bar, is that a spoiler? Yes. (laughs) I was surprised to see her birthday girl demeanour replaced by weeping. It appeared that the generosity of young Charlie had led to, be- led to her becoming totes emotion. Since weeping is reasonably unusual for my wife, we simultaneously realised that this could be a sign of a much hoped for second pregnancy. And this turned out to be correct. My wife's pills, as in PILS, pregnancy-induced lachrymosity syndrome, turned out to be a fairly accurate pregnancy test. I would therefore... So this is whole new... This is a medical breakthrough. OK, very good. I would therefore recommend Charlie and the Chocolate Factory 2005 as a cheap pregnancy testing kit for any not usually demonstratively emotional young female listeners. Unfortunately, due to the fear of squirrels and creepy Johnny Depp embedded in my eldest son, who's now 13, at this showing, our family have never been able to re-watch the movie to verify this scientific discovery. Our second son, born this, the following April, has still not seen the movie that verified his existence. Thanks for the... Classic podcasts, copyright iTunes 2015. Love the show, Steve. That's from John Piper. So the interesting thing about that is that not only does this lachrymosity syndrome continue, but you can actually use it as a pregnancy test. If you surprisingly burst into tears at Charlie at the Chocolate Factory from 2005, you're pregnant. But There you, is no other reason. Except Quentin Tarantino was apparently recently on uh, talking uh, somewhere uh, and he he admitted to the same thing. To, yeah, we've uh, got some correspondence on that. Oh, have we? Okay, fine. I don't want to, don't want to, pre- I don't want to plot spoil. I'm so sorry. I've Similarly, just... Emilia Bona says, I'm a huge fan of the show and as a technologically challenged but unfalteringly enthusiastic member of Edinburgh University's student radio station... I find myself in complete awe of how well-produced and professional this show is. How did this get through? With the words well-produced and professional and then highlighted in green. I was inspired to send my first ever email into the show after discovering a new form of lachrymosity syndrome on a long train journey home for Christmas through the heart of Wales. I always try to ensure that my choice of on-train movie won't end up making me cringe in self-awareness as those around me witness anything excessively steamy or violent over my shoulder. Have you ever found that? If you're watching 
like a tester, you know, you've yeah, got a little, yeah, I, I, and you're watching something and go, oh, it's a little bit uh, violent or a little yeah, bit I, I rumpy pumpy. I immediately turn it off and shut the, yes, I absolutely, I, I can't, yeah, I can't bear the idea of being in a public space watching something that would be inappropriate. Didn't somebody once write us in an, an email saying there was somebody on a train watching Blue is the Warmest Colour or something? Something like that. Yeah. Oh, well done, you remembered it. Just anyway, for this, yeah. I can't remember anything. So for this particular journey, says Amelia, I decided to watch Pitch Perfect 2. It had been a very long and challenging semester at university and I wanted something easy for my tired brain. However, due to my viewing experience, I found myself suffering from Pamils, premenstrual-induced lacrimosity syndrome. Having watched this film once before, I had found it to be a relatively average 115 minutes of unexceptional entertainment, which followed a predictable dramatic arc and produced few minor titters. And yet, this second time around, I found the harmony and sisterly camaraderie of it all too much to take and found myself audibly sobbing on the train as my fellow passengers looked on with a mixture of confusion and concern. So, you just have to be very careful when in public. Yes. That's exactly. all we're saying. So are you ready to talk around that film? I am ready to talk around that film. We can't even say the title. No. Are you going to do... And I can say this because there's yeah, no one on. watching on the webcam. Okay. I'm going to act this out. Yes. Presumably we're not going to make any reference to the... No, 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 we're not. That scene yeah. and the... No, we're not going to do that. So you can't do that? No. None at all. But you don't have to be kept because that's perfectly fine. No one could sense what I was. No, I was doing I know, that. I know. I know. I know. I'm just worried even by the. But how can that? How can I know. That be? I know. It's not rational, Simon. I'm it's just like acting out a scene. Clowns. There are no pictures. This is audio I know, only entertainment. I know, and the I scene know. where that happens. I know. I know. Fine. On with the show. Uh, very excited to have J.J. Abrams back on the show. So the last time he was on. We were talking about Star Trek. Was it Star Trek Into Darkness? Mm-hmm. That was the last one, wasn't it? And we had uh, we had a conversation about colons. Star Trek colon Into Darkness. Oh, no, because no, it, wasn't. it wasn't. <laughs> because there I'm wasn't so one. sorry. It's Star Trek Into Darkness, and the whole point was that there wasn't a colon, and that, right. that caused absolute f- fan mania. Well, you, you, well, we're going to discuss colons when J.J. Abrams comes on. Just up to th- Obviously, we've recorded the interview um, uh, with him, and... Here's the thing, which we might as well say right at the very beginning. Which I've got so many emails from people who are looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Loads of people who have We've actually seen, seen it. it. If you don't want to know anything, anything about anything about Star Wars, nothing, clearly the podcast is going to be the ideal thing for you because although we will not give anything away about the movie, clearly we will discuss, for example, the actors, um, the cinematography, the general feeling of the film. Uh, we won't give anything else away, yeah. but we have to talk about it because people want to hear what you think about. Yeah, well, I mean, what I'd like to say at the beginning is I will try really hard to avoid spoilers. Um, and you've I, run all this past your son, yes. who is more hardcore than anyone. Exactly. And I will try really hard, but the fact of the matter is, you know, it's like, I, I, the, if you don't want to know anything, then please just, you know, save the podcast until afterwards. We, are, we will do our, our very, very best to not give anything away. But we, you know, but I'm not even going to act out any scenes for the the webcam because people on the webcam will object to, you know, so I can't even do that. Yeah. So we will be super special and very clever about it. But we are going to talk about the movie and who's in it and whether it's any good. not, Not about. Yes, even discussing who's in it is a pretend... Oh, heaven's sake. OK, look, we'll do our best. We're all grown-ups. Yeah, pl- just meet us halfway with Everyone us. We will up. do our best, OK? Meg, on this email, we have reached the official release then. Like all highly anticipated film releases, there is a twinkling of fairy dust in the air. 
It feels like J.J. Abrams is babysitting our firstborn while we tentatively venture, wide-eyed and blinking, into the movie theatre. We've read the press releases, we've heard the stories, we've seen the trailers, we've even managed to avoid the spoilers so far. So now what? My worldly wise advice at this time, savour this moment. This is a very wise email, by the way. Go ahead. Because... Uh, she says, savour this moment. By the weekend, you will probably be out the other side of seeing this fantastic franchise breathe new life, and that is the very point. Come Sunday night, you'll have your opinions, memories, experiences that, if it's anything like the first movie, really will be with you forever. You can never unsee this movie. If I'd known, aged five, back in 1977, what fun Star Wars was going to give me and my children over the years to come, I'd have been a whole lot more excited. Okay, we had episode one back in the 90s, but we knew where that was headed. This time, we're on completely new ground. Here's my chance to experience these last few hours of episode seven, Innocence, and I hope you're relishing bathing in the glow of this too. Whatever the force is, may it be with you. And Jason. See, the thing is, it's if you haven't seen it, this is Christmas Eve. No one has spoiled it yet. You don't know whether it's going to be great, don't know whether it's going to be awful. So in, enjoy the moment and the anticipation. That moment when you go in and you sit down and you're and you're there and you're looking at everyone else and they're all like Chris Rea driving home for Christmas. They're excited like you are you know, and they're just waiting for this thing to start. I had to write a, a, a column uh, a while ago. <coughs> Excuse Did me. You write a column? No, it was not that kind. I had to, oh, write, no, a, I had to write a column for somebody um, about you just looking forward to movies that were coming out at Christmas. And it was that moment when we hadn't seen any of the movies and we didn't know whether any of them were any good. And it was like exactly the moment you're talking about when, you know, everything's wrapped up and sparkly and under the tree and, and the, the disappointment hasn't happened yet. The disappointment then being Christmas with the Coopers and the night before. Mm-hmm. And that usual. So it was, it was exactly like it was the last moment before ripping off the wrapping paper and going, oh, Old socks. Anyway. Thanks. All that coming up. Also in the next half hour, keeping the space theme, uh, British astronaut Major Tim Peake is going to be speaking live from the International Space Station as it orbits the Earth. If he does, we'll try to bring that to you live. So there's a kind of a spacey thing going on. Yes. We can talk about that. Can we sing ground control to Major Tom as well? Uh, Who's this? Sean from Chartham. No doubt you've received a huge amount of... (laughs) Yes emails in relation to The Force Awakens, and I hope you think my contribution's okay. To say I am excited about the forthcoming Star Wars movie is an understatement. As a 40-year-old male, I grew up loving episodes four to six. I had the toys, wallpaper, PJs, posters. Spoiled child? Yes, unashamedly so. I am racing through previous podcast episodes in order to listen live for the first time to Mark's review from work on Friday in advance of watching the film with my son on Sunday. I'm also making my son watch episodes four to six before Sunday. I refuse to watch episodes one to three, Jar Jar Binks, and so on. What will Mark say? I wait with bated breath, the most eagerly awaited film since I don't know when. Sean, thank you very much. Dr. Ian Lewins. Long time ago, on a radio station far, far away, I'm sure I recall the good doctor reviewing The Phantom Menace and being forced, see what I did there, to give it a score out of ten. Did I have to do that? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what you gave it? Four, probably. Mark awarded it a remarkably generous seven out no. of ten. No. Wait, but qualified this by saying it was a seven out of ten, provided you were sat one row away from William Freakin. Oh, fine. As he happened to be at that particular showing. I was therefore wondering whether Mark would be reviewing the forthcoming The Force Awakens without prejudice, or if he will be applying what shall be henceforth known as the Friedkin coefficient. 
Thank you, Dr. Ian. Can I just tell you what, what's funny about that? You were at that same screening with me. I was. Um, what made it funny was that Friedkin fell asleep very loudly. And he did that. He sort of he slumped, virtually sort of lolled out of his chair as Jar Jar was doing stuff and the pod, pod racing boy was going whoopee. Um, Callum O'Grady, uh, he says, I attended a, a World of Cine mystery screening on Tuesday this week. Punters were invited to take a risk and see an upcoming movie before its scheduled release without knowing what the film would be. All we knew is that it would be a 3D film and it would be a 12A. Naturally, the buzz on Twitter suggested it could be... Snoopy. ...a screening of Star Wars. It couldn't be, could it? And the answer to that was... No. No, it couldn't. (laughs) What was it? I mean, really... Do you honestly think that they would take that risk? Anyway, no, it couldn't. The atmosphere in the packed-out screening was electric, right up until the BBFC film certificate popped up and informed all in attendance it would be the heart of the sea. A huge (laughs) groan of disappointment spread across the theatre, at which point several people voted with their feet and left. left. That was such a foolhardy thing to do. But really, not, not to leave. I mean, to, to, to do the screening like that. But, but also, but seriously, it, no, there aren't going to be any mystery secret screenings of this no. anticipated with all the no. secrecy that's gone really, on. Really, no. Anyway, it was all quite funny, says Callum. I stayed to watch the Moby Dick origin story despite being mildly disappointed, if only so I could thumb my nose to Star Wars fans across the country by seeing it a few days earlier. Ron Howard's seafaring romp is all right, but nothing that special. Master and Commander it ain't, and as a vegetarian, Mark might find some of the whaling scenes a bit too much. I think Russell Crowe versus the French was a much fairer fight. (laughs) Needless to say, I was rooting for the whale. You might like to know that Ron Howard is our guest on the programme on Christmas Day, so in a week's time, and Mark will be reviewing it then, our Christmas show on then uh, from one o'clock. Major Tim Peake on the way. Uh, Any second, in fact. Barry Cap says, In 2012, my partner Liz and I were lucky enough to attend the London Sundance show with your special guest Robert Redford. On that afternoon, Liz, being the shy and retiring type, promptly volunteered to offer her opinion on the film Mirror Mirror, starring Lily Collins. Oh, yeah. Mark was rightly dismissive of the movie, but I watched with amazement as my girlfriend fearlessly ventured to the stage and offered her contrary opinion of the film. In a busy week, I have tickets for the midnight showing of The Force Awakens at my local First Order Sinisterplex... And on Friday the 18th, when your show airs, I'll have been married to the wonderful Liz for just under an hour. To surprise, wow. my new wife and assorted wedding guests, could you give us a Star Wars inflected was up and wish us well on the day? How could you do a Star Wars inflected? That's a, that's, what, what kind of tune is that? It's that sounded bit, like a western. Oh, for heaven's sake. Really? Now you go. No, sorry. Singing is your thing. You're in a band. So you're not going to do it for them? They're, they've, they, they, they've, they've got married and you're not going to do the what's well, up thing? Uh, there isn't a star, there isn't such a thing as a Star Wars. What's up? I'm not a performing monkey. I am, actually. Do you want anything else other than Star Wars stuff? You, I, I, you, I will... I, whether you lead, I shall go. All right. Um, Neve. Neve Allen. As a relatively new listener, I feel that I miss out on a lot of your in-jokes. I don't think we do in-jokes, do we? Which are part and parcel of the show. I've heard the hello to Jason whole thing many times. After seeing Hector today in my local world of Sydney, I was confused about why the majority of people were deciding to stay until the end of the credits. When listening to your podcast en route back to uh, to my flat in East London, I was audibly shocked at the revelation of the insertion of hello to Jason Isaacs in the credits. That's why people stayed, apparently. Ah, 
Let's go live to the International Space Station. Major Tim Peake is doing a press conference. He's giving thumbs up. Let's hear what he's got to say. Hi, Tim. It's Fred Dynage from ITV Meridian. Great to see you again. When we spoke here in Cologne five years ago, you described how you felt life on the International Space Station would be. Is it as you imagined? Is it better? Is it worse? Is it heaven or is it hell? It's way better than I imagined. It is actually really hard to describe. Um, I mean, just the, the whole ride into space on the Soyuz rocket. What a phenomenal machine. So powerful, such a smooth launch. And then arrival on board the International Space Station and adapting to this weightless environment and being able to go to the cupola and look at that amazing view of planet Earth. It's, it's way beyond my expectations. That's Tim Peake speaking from the International Space Station. And I don't know if you were listening to that and thinking, how come that the questions that are coming from ground control to Major Tim, they sounded like they're on the phone and not very good quality. He from space sounds like he's in the room. Speaking to us from space, how genuinely astonishing was that? Can I tell you why? It's because that guy's voice is being sent to us by NASA. Yeah, plus, uh, and you may well see the pictures of this later, he was, uh, while the questions were coming in, he was spinning his microphone in the air in a way that Roger Daltrey would (laughs) really, really have enjoyed. He was definitely showing off with his weightless uh, microphone. Tim Peake speaking uh, live from the International Space Station, just to go with that space theme, which is nicely done. Um, Thank you very much, Steve, for all the correspondence. What we're going to do is uh, JJ Abrams after the 2.30 news and sport uh, and travel. We'll do the box office top 10 between then and now. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it just because a lot of it has been around for a very long time. Number 10, Victor Frankenstein. I didn't dislike it as much as some people did. It is definitely flawed. Um, there are sequences in it that don't work anything like as well as they should do, and it does feel like, appropriately, a collection of body parts sewn together. However, there are individual things in it which I quite liked, and I thought the performances were quite endearing. Carol's in number nine. Well, this is one of my favourite films of the year, and straight into my top the top five, in fact. And I thought it was... I, I really loved it. A very good adaptation of Patricia Highsmith by Todd Haynes, who is a director who I've always admired, with Stan out performances by Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara and superb uh, cinematography by Ed Lachman shot on Super 16. Um, This, uh, an anonymous uh, email. Dear Doctors, regarding your comments regarding Carol not necessarily being a lesbian love story, excuse me, I can't help but disagree with you both and Miss Blanchett because it was a similar point that came out of the interview. As a member of the LGBT community, I find that the film's sense of longing and the subject of banned love resonated deeply with me. I wept as the scenes depicting Carol's husband's inability to understand as her nature uh, unfolded. I similarly empathise with Therese's confusion at her budding sexuality. Carol may not be an overtly gay story in the way that it's shown, but the themes that necessarily emerge are unique to members of the gay community. They were deeply felt and empathised with by me. I think it is a gay love story and all the better for it. So happy to stand uh, corrected and informed. I guess what I was trying to suggest was it's not a lesbian love story the way a lesbian love story would traditionally have been shown in other movies. Is that fair? I I think I I would say that the the best way of describing it, yes, of course it is a lesbian love story. It is also, I think, a universal story about uh, people finding their identity and about, which I think is really at the root of all this, people discovering who they are sometimes despite themselves and certainly against a backdrop of a society which not only disapproves of them but actively doesn't see them. 
I'm slightly distracted because Major Tim Peake is now doing backward somersaults. Why am I bo- even bothering to do this no. when, you've, when you've got an astronaut doing back somersaults? <clears throat> you know, a backward somersault is not particularly great radio, so I'm just telling you okay. what's happening on Thank the International you. Space Station. Thank that's you. All. He's not okay. saying that. He's just, that's what he's doing. OK. It's called showing off. Uh, so that Carol's at nine, Krampus is at eight. Which I thought of, of all the sort of the, the slew of Christmas movies was the one that was uh, was more palatable than the others. It's a kind of Gremlins-influenced uh, horror comedy. Heavier on the comedy than the horror, but that doesn't mean that it, it shies away from nastiness when it needs to. It does have a certain amount of teeth, a certain amount of bite. It's, not, it's certainly not as good as Gremlins, and it owes a great debt to rare exports. But... In a, in a season in which we have Christmas with the Coopers and the night before, this is the one to go for. Black Mass is at number seven. Again, a, a solid piece of work. Uh, people have talked about it being a sort of resurrection for uh, Johnny Depp's career. Uh, I think he's good in it. I thought, as I've said before, the film was slightly heavy on the wigs and hair and makeup, but that's fine. The story is fairly familiar and it's... It doesn't live up to the promise of the movies to which it alludes. It's not The Godfather, it's not Goodfellas, but it's a very solidly done crime drama with some nice... There's one thing which is interesting about it. There's a sequence in it in which the central one of the central characters wife has gone to bed because she doesn't want to be downstairs associating with Johnny Depp's character and he goes upstairs and there's a very intimidating uh, scene which uh, completely threw me because he goes to find her in the bedroom and she's reading a book and everyone said to me she's reading The Exorcist she's not reading The Exorcist she's reading William Peter Blatty on The Exorcist bizarrely she's reading the original screenplay that wasn't made which is the weirdest bit of trivial detail Lady in the Van at Six laughed cried thought it was really terrific and thought Maggie Smith was great and was really impressed by how they adapted it from stage to screen. Christmas with the Coopers at number five. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Bridge of Spies at number four. Yay! Steven Spielberg gives you that thing which is, look, I'm a proper filmmaker, I'm making really great, well-made, well-put-together movies. It's OK, you can relax, you're in the hands of a master. Spectre is at number three. I still... Rem- remain astonished by how much some people took against Spectre because I really enjoyed it and every time I see clips of it with people doing roundups of the year I actually just want to go and see it again and smile all the way through it with the exception of the bit with Monica Bellucci. When Sam Mendes was on, when Daniel Craig was uh, was on, when we did our, our James Bond special, we did discuss the certification of Spectre, which is, as you know, a 12A, as is Star Wars. Uh, and there are a number of people who've been in touch with the programme and they're puzzled about the certification and they're wondering whether they can take seven and eight-year-olds and so on. It is an issue which we bring up with J.J. Abrams in the next 20 minutes. We will discuss the certification uh, as one of the main things that people need to know about. Because if you look at the BBFC uh, description and the app yeah. where they go through, all the, it's not doesn't really explain very much. So we'll talk Have about Have they tried that. to avoid plot spoilers as I well? <laughs> Um, a bit, yes, I think that's fair to say. Contained scenes of mm, and some, mm, but look but, away but with a little that, bit of mm, mm. the good dinosaurs at number two. It's a dinosaur. It's not that good. The backgrounds are great, but as soon as you start noticing that the backgrounds are great and the water is brilliantly digitally rendered, it tells you that the the story itself has lost its way. I mean, the film did famously lose its director and most of its original voice cast when they just discovered that it just it wasn't coming together and it wasn't gelling. Um, it never quite pulls its act together. The central premise is that, you know, an asteroid, a meteor, didn't wipe out the dinosaurs all those millions of years ago and they've now evolved. It 
it's it's oddly unsatisfying, despite the fact that, as with every Pixar offering, there is enough in there just in sheer visual wonder to make you go, "Ooh, ah, isn't that beautiful?" But in the same year as uh, as um, same year as Inside Out, it, it's really dragging its feet. Hunger Games: Mockingjay Part Two. Well, it is worth pointing out that, that we've got all the way to number one without Sisters making an appearance, but that's because Sisters is doing a yep. six-day opening weekend, isn't it? They're doing it for themselves, aren't they? <laughs> Actually, we have got Sisters correspondence uh, and uh, and also Grandma, and I was just going to... We're going to try and yeah, get no, them no, in. No, I was just flagging it up because ob- obviously loads of people would have been to see it, but because it technically opened on Saturday, not Friday of last week, it doesn't... The opening weekend won't come through until yeah. Monday. Uh, uh, Hunger Games is, is fine. Out in space... Major Tim Peake is still um, twirling his weightless uh, microphone. And I wonder if there was anyone else who, when the first question came in from Earth, and it was from Fred Dynage, went, how? How? (laughs) Because I did, and some people thought, that's you doing. Uh, Anyway, so in in the next half hour... That's really showing your age, though, isn't it? Absolutely. Your thoughts on Star Wars uh, are very welcome, of course. Mail at bbc.co.uk. As we mentioned before, if you don't want to know anything, if you don't want to hear J.J. Abrams, you can come back and listen to the podcast. But it's a very, very respectful conversation. He is a fabulous guest, if you remember from when he came on and talked about Star Trek. Tee it up then, Mark. Okay, so uh, a couple of days ago, uh, you spoke to J.J. Abrams, the director of Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, He is very, he's a a very good guest and he tries very hard to avoid giving away any plot spoilers. Um, As we've said before, if you don't want to know anything at all, now may, may be a good time to turn off and podcast later. In the meantime, for everybody else who does, here is Simon talking to J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams, good afternoon. Afternoon. How big is the smile on your face today? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very relieved that the movie is finally uh, coming out to the world. I, I mean, th- that must be an understatement. I mean, I, when I walked down uh, here to the, to the hotel, I walked through Leicester Square. There are still stormtroopers there. They're, they are still clearing they're up. They're not going to leave. I think they're just <laughs> going to be there for a while. Uh, no, it, it really, it's, it's an amazing thing to see how much this saga this world means to so many people and we knew that of course yes. from the beginning but uh i feel like we've all been in this bubble uh working on the movie and to finally get to have conversations like this to finally get to screen the film for fans and and see people in some cases show up in costume and and loiter in Leicester square it's was the great. was the 11 year old you kind of looking at that crowd thinking that that's me. That's 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 where I would have been when when the first movie opened. Well, I, I certainly uh, have been a Star Wars fan since I was ten. But the um, to see it from uh, this vantage point is a, a really incredible thing, especially in this age. I mean, when I was ten years old, because there was there was no social media and, and computers were the size of uh, of you know buildings. Uh, the idea that there would be a kind of uh, a way to aggregate uh, it, the only thing was standing online for the movie or maybe buying a magazine yeah. uh, about it now uh, you know the community uh, of of Star Wars fans is so connected and, and so vocal and when they come together it really is a powerful thing to see when we last spoke to you on the program, it was first Star Trek Into mm-hmm. Darkness. We had a long conversation about colons, actually, and about, about it was Star <laughs> Trek No Colon Into Darkness. But there is a colon in this in this title. Uh, yes, it was uh, it was contractual. I I wanted one. You absolutely had to have yeah. one. But you said you said to us then that you made the Star Trek movie as much for those who weren't fans as for those who were. Mm. 
did the same did you approach this with the same mindset or was it completely different having been such a fan well this was uh, such a continuum of something that uh we knew was much more of a a, a saga than than what the star trek story uh, was going to be what I, what i mean by that is uh there was a sense of um of inevitability that we wanted to uh, make sure, working with Larry Kasdan, it was important to him too. We wanted to make sure that the, uh, that the story felt in this episode seven, that it was a continuum from, uh, of course, uh, four, five, and six. The, the Star Trek uh, movie, it, it felt, uh, I guess the, the best way to answer this question is just to say, uh, of course, yes, you don't want any movie to feel like you have to do work or you know homework or studying to understand yeah. what the story is. But there was a different feeling approaching this uh, than the uh, anything else I'd worked on before. and And part of that is that the Star Wars saga uh, feels like it is this whole cloth. and uh, and I, I felt that it was uh, important to do what George did in the the first film, which is drop the audience into a story where you're not explaining and spoon-feeding everything, but you give enough information so the audience can infer everything that's important. For example, in the, in the first film, you don't know what the Clone Wars are, but you hear about it. Yeah. You don't know what the Empire really wants, but you hear about it. You don't know what the Senate really is, but you hear about it. There are all these things, dark times and, you know, a million little references. And it was that sort of approach of respect to the audience and to the characters that allowed, I think, the the story to have a sort of uh, uh, this expansive quality that the, the world went beyond what it is you were seeing. And so we wanted to make sure that if you were just dropped into this world, you wouldn't need to have seen episodes one, two, and three, or four, five, and six, to understand where where you were. And that really was sort of taking the lead uh, from what George did. Yeah. When Sam Mendes was on the show a few weeks back talking James Bond, he, in fact, Daniel Craig told us he actually only finished the movie like the Saturday before it was finally uh, readily available. He was mixing some extra dialogue, and he, wow. he had to be pulled away. You know, two mm. more weeks would have been perfectly fine. Sure, yeah. When did you actually finish the last comma the last full stop the last bit of dialogue when was it finally last colon we basically uh we finished the movie a, a few weeks ago uh we we went back in to do one little sound adjustment for something but it, it wasn't a, a yeah. big thing uh but this was not one of those down to the wire we have no time uh or not enough time situations i've i've been there too but this felt comfortable um the the first thing i want to say obviously this conversation will avoid spoilers there are so many people who i know aren't listening to this conversation because they don't want to hear anything about it before they go and see the movie okay Mm -hmm. so the only thing i want to say is i think the movie was beautiful oh thank you and the first it's the first 30 seconds i think people will go okay fine i'm going to sit i'm going to relax because this is going to be great so it manages to be beautiful and grungy Mm. At the same time, it feels like it's 1977 again. Mm. That's what, so avoiding all the spoilers, which I know you do because you spent the last few years mm. doing it. What can you tell us about the story mm. uh, that people are going to go and see? 
Uh, well, I can say that it is a uh, it's a brand new story with with brand new characters, and yet it exists in a familiar world. the The approach we we took was to go backwards in order to go forwards, uh, to go back to the sort of tenets of Star Wars. Uh, someone I work with said that uh, Star Wars is like a Western. If you're going to do a Western, you're going to probably have horses. You're probably going to have a cowboy, too. You're probably going to have a saloon and a, uh, maybe a bank, maybe a stagecoach, a bad guy who's probably going to wear black. There are these yeah. things that you're just going to inherit given uh, the genre. So this new story takes place uh, in a world and, and with kind of a history repeats itself uh, uh, thematic. It's about a character named Ray, who is uh, played by Daisy Ridley, this uh, incredible newcomer. Uh, Londoner, who is uh, uh, a scavenger. She's on her own. She has learned to survive uh, and is, because of that, uh, a sort of uh, very capable, independent, uh, but very isolated and lonely character. Uh, you've also got uh, John Boyega, uh, also a Londoner, playing... Uh, the uh, London influence in this movie is strong. Yeah, it's, it's, it's outrageous. Uh, he's playing a, a stormtrooper, who uh, has a, a crisis of, of conscience and uh, and abandons his post and leaves the First Order, which is uh, what the Empire has uh, sort of morphed into. And the two of them cross paths uh, with this uh, droid, our new droid BB-8, and the three of them begin this adventure. And it really is, uh, that's really all you need to know about sort yeah. of how this, this story starts. But the the larger idea, the larger story, what's happened to Han, what's happened to Luke, what's happened to Leia. If you care about Star Wars, there are questions that are answered in the movie. And if you've never seen Star Wars, you get to meet these characters in a way that I think uh, works as well. How much tougher, how much different a task is it to cast a, a, a trilogy? of? Presumably when you're looking at characters like Daisy, who you mentioned, hmm. they're going to be in this for a while. Is it more difficult to cast three movies than if you were casting for one? You know, every movie, every television show, every play, you obviously try to cast the person, the people that you think are the best. Uh, when we were casting for the pilot for Lost, we had a, an enormous number of, of characters that needed to, to be cast. And we discovered as we were going through it what a puzzle it was. Uh, the best version of this is you have an idea and you're willing to go for the better idea, meaning you have a sense of what a character might be like, what he or she might uh, look like, the qualities they might have. But you need to be open to the alchemy of an actor you didn't anticipate and the words that are written. So when someone comes in and gives a reading and you think, oh, this could be great, that's a piece of it. Then you have to look at the whole puzzle and say, well, who else is in this, you know, virtual poster and so this was a whole as it always is process of trying to figure out who are the best people and knowing this was the beginning of a new trilogy uh we had to be mindful as certainly uh you know the the casting directors uh, of the first harry potter film knew this was not a one-off this was going to be a real uh essentially a, a life-changing and yeah. and uh, many year process i've got some listeners questions and uh, overwhelmingly supportive. Absolutely love the movie. Two to oh, four, so uh, five stars and so on. Ricky Carvel picks up on uh, a point a number of people are asking about. I saw the original Star Wars as a seven-year-old 
And it was without a doubt the most exciting cinema experience I've ever had. I now have a seven-year-old son and I want him to have something like the same experience. But this film is a 12A. Is this film suitable for him? And a number of people are saying it's a 12A, but it should be a PG. Mm. I don't, they're not sure why it's been given this certificate. Can you give some guidance here? Well, here's what I'd say. Uh, we have a nine-year-old and uh, this nine-year-old has uh, teenage siblings. And so, like any kid who has uh, older brothers or sisters, uh, he has seen uh, probably a few things that uh, he might not have otherwise. Certainly things that our oldest would not have seen at nine years old. Um, so I know that for him, seeing something that uh, is rated uh, 12, you know, may be uh, a much easier decision. You know, it, it honestly, for me, feels like it's something that's for everyone. Yes. And I don't think because it is a fantasy, and at the the heart of Star Wars, it was always a fantasy. I don't believe that this movie is too intense for a a kid that age. Having said that, uh, I I always recommend to my friends, and as I would to, you know, your listeners, it's not a bad idea to see the movie yourself, and then make the the determination for your child. But, uh, you know, I, I would hate to say, you know, it's great for five year olds, take your five year old and, and have someone go and say, Ooh, that was that was it's too up. intense for a five year old. So I would say make sure that you either see it yourself or, or ask friends who've seen it. Uh, your wife gave an interview in which she said that you were most worried about what your nine year old would think mm. about the movie. What does your nine year old think? Well, you know, he loves it, but uh what you come to learn very early on is uh is two things. One is uh you know, kids are always gonna be brutally honest, uh, no matter what, but two don't necessarily trust the people uh, who talk to you about what you've done because it's, you know, uh, I know that he's, he's, he's a, a great kid and he, he says he loves the movie, but it's also, uh, it's daddy's movie. So I, you know, but he, he, I would ask his friends before I would Fair ask Fair enough. Him. I'm going to see if I can fit in these four questions before yes, we finish. Please. Keith Fraser, who would win in a fight, Han Solo or Captain Kirk? Um, in a, in a fight? Yep. Between uh, the two. you know, it, 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 uh, it's a tricky one because, uh, you know, I'm, I would say Han Solo because I think he would just shoot first. Martin Chatterton asked, what was going through your mind when Harrison got injured? Uh, it was terrifying. And it, it, it was uh, it was it was truly uh, horrible. And I think that when you are going through something that is that is so shocking, uh you don't know really ever what is going through your mind. Uh, it's sort of this thing that happens and you, you sort of operate on a different Did uh, you get level. injured yourself trying to, trying to help Harrison? I did, yeah. Like this thing on. Yeah, I, I, like, uh, like uh, an idiot, I, I tried to lift this door, this hydraulic door, and uh, in the process uh, broke my back. I fractured my L4. Uh, and it was just... It was a, a really unfortunate day, and yeah. and uh, <laughs> luckily for all of us, uh, Harrison Ford was not um, he was not injured uh, at, at the way he could have been. Uh, though he did break his leg at a horrible, you know, ninety degree angle, it was this really screwed up moment. But I will say that uh, he came back remarkably stronger and faster, uh, and. and uh, more energized than I think I'd ever seen him, and I've known him since uh, 1990. Here's the question, which probably has to be acted out. This is Andy Sisma's question, and we'll probably finish with this, mm-hmm. okay? 
does he love this movie? I mean, like, really love it in capital letters. Is it as good as he imagined it would be? Man, I hope it's good. Okay. Wow. So... Am I supposed to answer this? No, okay. I'm going to reinterpret it. Was there a, was there a moment? I said I, I sighed with relief after 30 seconds because the opening is so beautiful, oh. as indeed is the conclusion. Oh, thank you. Uh, was there a moment when you internally said, I've, I've got this, where you sighed and thought, okay, I have it? I, I will tell you, I, I, I never had that moment holistically about the movie, uh, but I there were moments making the film where I felt like, uh, I, where I knew things were working, where I knew Daisy was giving an extraordinary performance, where I knew Han and Leia together uh, was a powerful moment, where I knew that Andy Serkis or, or Donald Gleason or Adam Driver uh, or any of these, these actors were making me almost giggle behind the camera because I thought, oh, they're doing such an incredible job. Uh, on a daily basis, whether it was the sets, the costumes, the the lighting. I mean, it, it was a... We, when we were in Abu Dhabi shooting uh, for the this desert planet called Jakku, it, there were moments constantly where I thought, oh my God, this really feels like Star Wars. And that to me was the thing that kept me going, feeling like I was working with this amazing cast and crew, all of whom were doing extraordinary work, all in the same direction, which is to bring this vital and 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 uh relevant but also you know fantastic world to life and in, in an authentic way so it was it was less oh i've got this than oh my god i'm in such good company and the work that's being done is extraordinary jj abrams we appreciate your time thank you very Cheers. much JJ, JJ Abrams recorded just after the uh, the premiere had happened. If, you, if you've seen it, you want to say uh, what you think, mayo at bbc.co.uk. More importantly, what does Mark think? Well, I'll again preface this review as we have before. I will try my very best to avoid any plot spoilers. If you absolutely don't want to know anything, don't listen. Well, I am going to try. So um, my thing with Star Wars is always this. I was, I was the wrong age. When the first ones came out, I was of the age in which I was sort of wedded to you know, Silent Running and, and Solaris. And I always thought that the, the Star Wars movies were kind of Buck Rogersy and and not to be taken that seriously. And I was also sort of snot-nosed enough to go, well, I don't need to be bothered by that. Years later, I was at Radio 1 when the prequels came out, as were you. Mm-hmm. And although I had never been a huge fan of the, of the originals, I did like Empire Strikes Back, I knew enough to know that I thought the prequels were kind of letting the originals down. I remember going to see the prequels with a Radio 1 competition winner who was the world's most unbelievable Star Wars fan. And he was kind of disappointed. That was the famous screening in which William Friedkin was there. You remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So, um, so I can't claim to be a, you know, a huge fan for, from the outset. And I've always been somebody who's never really sort of clicked with it, never really got it. However, watching Star Wars The Force Awakens, I had that weird experience of being a 12-year-old seeing, you know, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and hearing the John Williams fanfare and going, oh, I get it. It's like that. And it was a really strange experience for me because as somebody who doesn't have the emotional baggage invested in the series, I mean, it was interesting what J.J. Abrams was saying there was, you know, obviously it, 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 it needs to tie in with, the, with the, the, the Star Wars universe, but he wants it to work for somebody who's new. Well, I have seen all the other films, 
but I've never felt particularly invested in them. And in the case of this, I, for, you know, I was engaged. I thought it was exciting. I thought it was funny. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. And I've now seen it twice. Now, obviously, the difficulty is, um, you know, without without you know with anything to do with fan culture and particularly with this movie even talking about the cast list has threatened to be a plot spoiler you know i mean people have worried about who you know who is and who isn't so suffice to say there are action sequences in it that felt felt terribly physical and one of the things that really struck me was that the whole film felt like it had a physicality that was utterly lacking from the very, very heavily digitised prequels. Um, in terms of the way that they've shot it, they've used 35mm and there's some 65mm IMAX. Incidentally, I saw it in IMAX 2D. Uh, I then saw it again in a, in, a, in a more standard presentation. The IMAX 2D was breathtaking. And I know there is a 3D version. I haven't seen it, but having seen it twice in 2D, I don't feel any... And there was no, never any point in it where I thought, wow, these dogfights are a little bit unimmersive. I really need to have... In fact, I think it's one of the reasons why I saw it in 2D as well. Yeah. It feels like you're back in 1977 you, because you're looking at it in 2D. And it, and it really does feel like it has a physicality. It feels like it has heft. It feels like it has weight. If you've seen the trailers, you'll know, you'll know what I mean by that. There is also um, a sense of, I mean, JJ Abrams brought this up, there, in terms of the, some of the sand dune stuff, it does have a touch of that Lawrence of Arabia grandeur to it. There are sequences in it in which the landscapes were, as you said, beautiful. They were genuinely breathtaking. They reminded you of that sense of, you know, interplanetary awe that science fiction is meant to give you. There were, there were vistas that felt tactile and real. I think in terms of, uh, of the cast, we have two very good performances. I think Daisy Ridley is, is terrific as Ray, and I think John Boyega does a brilliant job with the role of Finn, which he manages to bring... He, firstly, he makes it credible, but also he brings out the, the humour in it. And one of the things that really impressed me about the film is how funny the jokes are. And I'm not going to repeat any of the jokes because I want you to... No, because I want you to enjoy them all the first time, but... There are jokes in this... It has more laughs in this film than there are in many alleged comedies that have been released, not just this year, but, you know, in any of the last few years. There are also, uh, you know, moments of drama, moments of tragedy, moments of... Uh, there were, there's a couple of moments when I actually went... <gasps> You know, I was. What were those moments? Yeah, thank Mom. you. But I mean, and that does that really doesn't happen very often. There was a there's there's there was a moment in the film in which I literally found myself gasping out. And in fact, one of the weirdest things was I was sitting in a cinema surrounded by people laughing, uh, cheering, gasping, and I suddenly realised that I was one of them. I mean, I suddenly had this weird experience of, and I, which was bizarre because I had, you know, fourteen-year-old to one side of me and twenty, thirty-year-olds to the other side, all of whom were massively invested in the story. So, I think that what it manages to do is, to a sceptic like me, it made a very entertaining, very engaging, very uh, dramatically solid reason for liking the Star Wars mythology. And I mean, obviously, as he said himself, he's talk about history repeating itself and using sort of tropes and familiar tropes that we recognise, that's all absolutely fine. But what the film managed to do, that, that, with the exception of Empire before, I think, had never done, was to make me feel emotionally engaged. And... Um, and I really did. I thought that the, you know, the tent sequences were genuinely tent. The the fact that the jokes are funny is really not to be underrated. Most jokes in most sort of 
you know, this kind, this kind of movie, they'll be overly referential. They'll be, you know, nodding and winking to the in crowd knowing. And as I said, second time round, if anything, it's actually, I mean, I preferred it more the first time because the IMAX 2D was perfect. But second time round, on a dramatic level, I really like the performances, particularly in St. Daisy Ridley, who I think is, is great, and John Boyega, who I think is really, really sort of, you know, rocks in the film. So it's a thumbs up from what, me, what, Simon. What happens in the film, though? See, that's very good. Very impressive. Uh, a, a good review, a big thumbs up review without actually telling us what happens in the film. Because people don't want to know that just yet. If you feel you're up to the task, send us an email without giving anything away. And if you do, we'll just redact it. Mayo at bbc.co.uk <laughs> because that's the kind of censorship that we're living under. Uh, 85058, more Star Wars and the other odd release coming in the next hour. The Force has awakened. Has The Force awakened within you, Mark? It has. And, you know, nobody was more surprised and, and also, I have to say, pleased than I, than but we, than we've, I was. We've said ever since J.J. Abrams. Abrams. I know. And it, actually, in a way, one, one of the things I want to say also, to be clear about this, I know that some people will think, oh, he just likes it now because he likes J.J. Abrams, because it's often said, oh, well, you know, film critics, they have their favourite directors and blah, 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 blah. And... There is a truth in that, in as much as if there's somebody whose work you like, you know, it's often it's often it's because they do interesting things with something. Um, but I I just want to be clear about this. Uh, I the minute I knew that J.J. Abrams was doing it, I actually said that to, I said if anyone's going to get me interested in Star Wars, it's going to be J.J. Abrams. And uh, so it's that's the unsurprising is is that he's actually managed to do it. But it's not it's not oh it's J.J. Abrams. Therefore, it's because the film's good. It's because the film works. And I mean that's. I remember this famous thing that uh, it's a friend of mine, Alan, Alan Frank, who's a film critic, once said that he wrote a review in which he said the film doesn't, d- didn't work. And his editor pulled him out and said, what, do you mean it broke in the projector? And he said, no, no, I mean it didn't work. And he said, well, what do you mean by it didn't work? Well, what I mean when I say it works is I've seen it with two audiences and both times the audiences, including me, have gone, you know, right? Yeah. And I, I really. That's, what, that's why I'm going to go and see it again because I went to I went, to, I went to press screening, uh, obviously before before interviewing JJ Abrams. And so what I got was where, when the lights go down, there was nothing. When the Lucas Films icon came up, yeah. there was nothing. In a galaxy, nothing. The John Williams music said nothing. I was thinking, come on, we all all ought to be cheering and applauding at this point. No, well, no. I mean, I, the, the screening that I was in the IMAX 2D screening when. Um, when the thing came up, you know, a long time ago, the audience spontaneously yes. went bonkers. That's what that's what you have to go for. So uh, let's see what we have here. Gordon Bradford, having just come out of the one minute past midnight showing of Star Wars, I believe I can sum up everything that fans need to know about the film in a single sentence and without plot spoilers. Uh, here's the sentence. There is now officially a fourth Star Wars film. Oh, very good. As a man of a certain age whose childhood was forged in the galaxies of Star Wars, I am sure you can appreciate the gravity of that claim. I mean, you know, some people would argue that it's the third because they'd say, well, you know, Return of the Jedi is, as they say in Clerks, Muppets in space. Julia McKinnell. Uh, I braved the Antipodean first day of summer school holidays. The non- So she's in Australia. The non-code abiding crowds and half an hour of ads... Half an hour, two of which wow, were, two of which were trailers for Michael Bay and Zack Snyder's latest explodey fests to see Abrams' Star Wars in glorious 2D. Am I glad I did so? You bet. 
From the moment the opening Lucas, oh here we go. From the moment the opening Lucasfilm logo popped up, I got shivers in my spine. And when the title flashed on the screen in all its fanfare, all I could think was, "And we're back." Or should that be chewy? We're home. While not without flaws, thank you. Some emotional notes were rushed. I enjoyed every moment. The numerous references to the past were well incorporated. The story zipped along. The characters were great, and it all looked quite beautiful. The use of film to make the movie rather than digital was the right choice. I agree with that. I think it has made a, a, a tactile, tangible difference. Josh Bolton, um, I'm writing this on the way back from the midnight screening. What an absolutely fantastic film. It made just the right number of allusions to pay tribute to the originals without being gimmicky. And the old cast was used well to introduce the new characters without being reliant on them. Combined with some well-timed comedic lines, stunning visuals and an impressive, impressive score, this was everything the prequels should have been. Uh, Ruben Muir, I just got out of a midnight screening. Basically, people went to see it and then they yes. they needed to tell us what yeah, they good. thought. J.J. Abrams has managed to resurrect the Star Wars that we all missed. The film was funny, action-packed, full to the brim of drama. It was wonderful to see the old characters again and hear the wonderful score by John Williams, which has all the old favourites as well as some new pieces. The new characters are interesting, just as memorable, with Kylo Ren standing out as a fantastic Many questions have been raised. The running time zoomed by, and when it ended, I wanted to sit and watch it all again. If this doesn't make Mark like Star Wars, then I don't know what will. Can I tell you something about... I'll tell you a story about the the opening, you know, long ago, long time ago in Galaxy Far, Far yeah. Away. Can I tell you that? I'll be, I'll be quick as I can. Really? I will be as quick as I can. Um, uh, the, the, there is a story that that opening was the thing that killed William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Um, there's a, there is an Exorcist connection to this film, which you will t- tell in a moment. I'll do this very quickly. After The Exorcist was made, he spent four years making Sorcerer. It's a remake of The Wages of Fear. They spent a lot of money, and the film absolutely tanked. I think it's a, a, a lost masterpiece, but for many people it was Heaven's Gate. And Bud Smith, who cut the trailer for that film... Uh, none of the studio hadn't seen any of it. And he went to Man's Chinese Theatre to um, uh, to show the trailer. And the manager of the theatre said, oh, yeah, it's fine, we'll put it on now. There's some science fiction thing on it, it's fine, but you're in next week. And Bud Smith said he went there and he sat there and he saw the trailer for Sorcerer, this grim, grim, grim tale of, you know, of men up against really tough stuff happening. And he saw it play out and he thought, this is brilliant, this is brilliant, this is brilliant, we've made a masterpiece. And he said, I'll just I'll just hang around and just watch the main feature. And he said, and the, cl- the curtain's closed. And then all he remembers is the curtains opening. And he said, and they opened and they opened and they opened. And he said, and as, as far as he could tell, they kept opening forever. And then a thing came on which said, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, and he thought, we're finished. He said, in literally that minute, he realised the world had changed and they were, and it was all over for Sorcerer. And he was absolutely right. The, uh, yes, the, the Exodus connection is that J.J. Abrams saw it at the age of 10. Which is nuts incidentally I well mean, he says my father was insane i was so young what the hell was he thinking yeah anyway well he, i agree with that that's <laughs> he then wrote to dick smith who did the, the, the he did the, all, all of the special effects i mean the, the dick smith and marcel vecute together did the special effects right. dick smith did the makeup effects i can't believe we've ended up talking about the exorcist anyway but basically he, he wrote to him uh praising him for his work and then dick smith sent him the prosthetic tongue, tongue. From the Exorcist. Wow! So I have I have a, a, a mould of the face of Linda Blair taken from the Exorcist. It was given to me by Paddy Considine, which is a bizarre roundabout route. And the, 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 just the, the conclusion of the of the quote from JJ. Oh, sorry. My mum says, "Who is this guy named Dick, and why is he sending you tongues?" 
So anyway, three days later, he gets a phone call from Dick Smith, and apparently he's very he's famous for helping out filmmakers and answering questions. And he is I mean, back to Star Wars. Yeah, he was a re- a real proper genius and a gent. Jennifer Kirby, an atmospheric scientist. I've just got back from the midnight showing. My review contains no spoilers. All I can say from the first moments of the new film starting, I sank back and released a sigh of relief. It felt like coming home after a long time had passed. From start to finish, the whole experience surpassed expectations. To anyone who's on the fence about this film, just go and see it. And you know that the opening shot of the first movie where the spaceship, whatever it is, yeah, it trundles over, and it trundles over forever. I think the first thirty seconds of this film are J.J. Abrams' kind of version of that. Okay, and I, and I that's think interesting. Yeah, there were there, there were in terms of spectacle, plenty of moments in it in which I. As I said before, that thing about sort of dis- dismissing the originals as being too Buck Rogersy, too light-hearted, too you know zip zang boom laser beams, there there were moments in this in which I f- I finally got you know dogfights and spaceships zipping around. It it worked for me. It worked for me in a way that it really hadn't done the first time around because the first time around I thought, oh, well, that's all silly. You know, my idea of a spaceship is the two thousand and one spaceship travelling very slowly and silently. An email from John Williams. That one. What do you think? I have no idea. BA with honours and advanced driving certificate is Harry <laughs> Sanders, so my guess is not. Oh, yeah, no, that's right. John Williams, uh, the composer, taught me to drive. J.J. Abrams and the other scriptwriters beautifully balanced the old with the new, tipping a nod to the events of 30 years previously without turning into a nonsensical nostalgia fest. It is directed slickly with Abrams' usual dazzling style, although happily utilising the bare minimum of lens flares. Yes, that, that, that is worth pointing out. He's definitely cut back on the lens flares. Without discussing moments or incidents, it's difficult to say more. You're quite right, John. Suffice to say, it was everything that you would want out of a Star Wars movie. It was fun, it had heart, the action was great, and crucially, I felt like I was seven again and watching The Return of the Jedi for the first time. It was blinking marvellous. Fans of all ages, not just Star Wars fans, but anyone who loves great cinema will not be disappointed. I just want to say something on that. I felt I was seven again. Um, the This is to... Uh, it ties into what J.J. Abrams was saying when you asked him about the 12 certificate. Um, and I know a lot of people worry about this, and I, I, I he is it, there. There's obviously something self-serving about saying I suggest that parents go and see the film first, and then yes. make up their own minds. Um, I have always been a great supporter of the BBFC certificates, and they they worry long and hard about getting it right. And I'll say the same thing about this that I do with every film. Whatever they don't give films a 12A certificate for the fun of it, they do it because they mean. 12 unless you have good reason to think otherwise and Simon would you agree with me that there are there are intense scenes in the movie that may well upset younger viewers I'm not sure that I would Oh, okay. Actually. Oh, well, that's interesting. Well, I, th- I, because I've been, be, and we, as you said, we we brought it up because listeners have been bringing it up, and you heard what J.J. Abrams uh, thought about it and his assessment of it. I can't quite work out how, for example, and we discussed this at the time, Lord of the Rings got a PG, and the opening hour of Lord of the Rings is way. I mean, once it's got past the light and frothy kind of Teletubbies bit, is way, way more intense. Than anything, okay. In the, anything in this movie, I am baffled as to why it's a twelve. It's a P, It feels like a PG. Obviously, every parent has to make their own judgment. But my nephew uh, was—he's he, 
young and my brother was thinking, and I was thinking, I think it's fine. Obviously, okay. if you have any right. doubt, take take JJ Abrams' advice, go and see it if there's any question. But I would think, in general, in as much as you can talk about in general, okay. for eight and nine year olds, seven, it's 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 fine. Okay. Well, Simon, I'm very interested to hear you say that because that's that that. Firstly, I trust your judgment bizarrely, uh, and secondly, I'm just I, that that isn't what I was thinking, but I I think you've probably got a better handle on it than I have. Can I? Is it okay to quote from the BBFC on I, their certificate? I don't know. Just just tread carefully, okay? Uh, okay. I think this, I think this is fine. So if people are okay. concerned, they can they can look on the BBFC website. Yeah, I mean that is the that's the best thing to say. Frequent yeah. scenes of moderate violence. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, say? that's fine. Yeah. Include this is not a surprise. Including use of blasters and lightsabers and dogfights between spaceships. Yes, that's fine. God bless the BBFC. It sounds like they're they're behaving as well as everybody else. Occasional scenes of moderate threat. Isn't it more than moderate threat? I'm just saying. Okay. Anyway, if tw- if Spectre was a top end twelve A, yes, well, is- well, yes, no, that's there's no question, there's no question. This is not in the. I mean, there are things in Spectre that did make people go blimey. That's a bit. If you'd asked me when I came out of the movie, I'd have said PG. Okay, okay, so. fine. Well, there we go. Uh, Natalie Brown. I'm just a few hours, uh, just a few hours ago, came out of Force Awakens at my local IMAX in Edinburgh with my younger brother. The acting was good. I loved the locations. I was very impressed by both Adam Driver and John Boyega. My brother and I both agreed it was a good film, but a very unsurprising film to watch. I was never bored, but never on the edge of my seat. However, what I'm more shocked by is that I don't consider this feeling that Star Wars 7 is a three, three out of three, four, maybe, star movie to be a disappointment. What did you think of... Can I ask you what you thought of Adam Driver? Yeah, very good. Okay. But, I mean, I, actually, I think the, 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 the most important thing is that... Daisy Ridley and John Boyega. It is, you know, it's f- f- in, in my terms, it's kind of their film. They are the they are the the hearts. I mean, it was interesting that when you asked J.J. Um, uh, Abrams to describe the plot, that he talked about that, and they are really the sort of the, the new characters. But you did feel like they were. I, I, I totally bought into them and I liked them and I wanted to find out what happened to them and you know and how their adventures played out. Richard Listen Wilkins, me, I sound like a child. You do, but that's. You go. You just had a magical few hours in the cinema. That's what it's all about. Twice. That's what. That's what it's all about. Richard Wilkinson, the old cast, gave you a nice but temporary sense of well-being, and it was the young leads, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, that really impressed as the future franchise holders. The only thing that surprised me was the 12A rating. Lots of disappointed kids this festive season, but for why? Surely this is a PG at best. Surely the studio would have had we would have cut a PG version, so maybe not suitable for under eights. But what is that? But what is a 12A certificate? What does it mean these days, or is it just that the classification system is woefully inadequate and inaccurate? Well, I don't. Th- I don't think it's woefully ina- inadequate and inaccurate. I think the BBFC are trying their. I mean, I think what they've done interestingly enough is that they've responded to certain elements in the in the film which are dark and upsetting um there are things in there that are that are gasp inducing and i think that that's what they're responding bear in mind one of the things that happened with the bbfc and they do try to do this is that they are tonally aware um people often say well if this this film has got this thing in it and this other film has got this same thing in it but they've got different certificates why and so much of it is to do with tone and context and so much of it is to do with what the bbfc are trying to do is understand even when it comes down to swearing whether for example a profane word is used aggressively or affectionately makes a difference 
to the way in which it's it's not just a simple checklist. And I know that there have been things recently. People on the people have been doing these campaigns. Oh, the BBFC is so terrible. Let's you know make them watch paint dry. You know, you, what do you want? You want to go back to a system where we have you know the chance of just saying, okay, well here's a list of things you can't do. Thank you very much. On the language front, yes, I'm going to chance my arm here. Oh, really? There is infrequent use. Of very mild bad language, for example, hell or damn. <laughs> yeah, that's very Again, good. I think that's fine. <laughs> that's okay. I don't think we spoilt it for anybody. Uh, Andrew Ross in Kingscowell. I have just watched the latest Star Wars at The View in Plymouth with my 24-year-old son. Wow, this is actually the best film I've ever seen and I'm not even joking. I watched my first Star Wars movie when I was 10 in 1977, before UK release, whilst on holiday at a drive-in movie theatre just north of Miami Beach. The new film by J.J. Abrams has just blown me away. I am not one for the technicalities of about how a film works, but just love to watch okay. films. And Very this good. one had me captivated from the first trailer. J.J. has done a fantastic job with the latest film. It's a little bit more gritty and violent than the previous episodes, but I can cope with that as I'm not 10 anymore. The characters are all fantastic. There's no attempt at cutesy, Ewok or joke characters. I am already looking forward to episode eight. And I'll be going again before too long. I love the fact that somebody's managed to get Ewoks in. Have you ever seen the um, uh, the the Ewok movies, Caravan of Courage? I somehow Ewok. have missed them. Haven't you? Have you? Should I look at? Was it? No, you shouldn't. But also, have you ever seen the Star Wars Christmas special, which was the thing that George Lucas tried to expunge from the face of all existence ever, but still exists? And I have seen it. And is have you seen it? No, I've it's managed a, to avoid. It's that a sort too. of Wookiee Christmas film, and it's it is. It was made before anybody understood really what Star Wars was going to become, and Lucas himself has said that if 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 he could, if of all the Star Wars things, if there's one thing he could he could make cease to exist, it would be the Star Wars Christmas special. Just just one more. We'll come back to this before we finish, but one more for the moment because there's other stuff to look at. Mark yeah. Mark Thompson, uh, I've just been to see the new Star Wars uh, this Wednesday morning. It was in French because I'm actually in France. Yeah. Um, but as with Spectre, which I saw several weeks ago, a different language doesn't pose too much of a problem with action. So he, did, he didn't see it version original. He saw it with, um, he saw it with, with a French dub. It was, it was clearly in French. in French. yeah. I think the best way to sum up the film without spoilers is just to say it's not Phantom Menace. Beyond that, there's probably not much point in saying anything else. All spoilers will be skillfully mumbled over by Simon. Anyone who's going to watch it will go and see it anyway. The score is a has a familiar majesty. The story is good. There are heartbacks to old films without it wallowing in nostalgia. And there are several times I bit my thumb in excitement as things happened. <laughs> I'm seeing it again in English this time on Friday morning, and I can't wait. I went to, uh, I was in uh, in France, and I was trying to see Nixon in French. Why? Because, oh, it's a long story. I had been, I had been temporarily banned from the from all screenings for this particular distributor, and they were showing Nixon, and they wouldn't show, show it. It was, it was a long time ago, back in the night. If you, you know, everyone gets. Back. Anyway, so I had to go to France to see Nixon, but I wanted to see Fra Nixon in English and my French isn't any good and I had this conversation with the guy in the ticket booth which is I said I, you know I want to see whatever it was Wadir blah, blah 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 Nixon on Angleterre and he said I said Nixon on Angleterre and he looked at me and went well you know go to England because apparently what I was saying was I want to see Nixon in England and he was looking at me like why don't you go to England why don't you go to England we should have had uh, Nikolai in to do that N uh Lorna, on this email, email, this morning I took my nearly 12-year-old son to see The Force Awakens. It was utterly brilliant, from the icon and music to the very end. I was a child again, and my own child loved all of it. Here's what also happened in the cinema. 
My son is at the age when I'm becoming an embarrassing mum without even trying anymore. This boy of mine, he reached for my hand for the first time in a very oh. long time. Sorry. And he held it tightly. Bang the mic. I'm sorry, right. sorry, sorry. My eldest boy and I had a proper moment because of Star Wars. That was wonderful. We laughed together. We gasped together. We cried together. We cheered together. We held hands through it all. I think I will take my nine-year-old son, having now seen it because he is a fan, and I can support and I can support through the bits that will need it. But I won't be taking my youngest Star Wars fan. He's not quite five, as I think for him it will be far too intense. We'll watch it with Very him good at home book. with a remote control to hand to fast forward through some bits. May the force be with you. How about that? So that, there you go. Five, yes, I would say definitely too young. Definitely too Nine, young. it will vary. There you go. What a nice moment she's had. Yeah, I should say I, should say I, I saw it with, with my teenage son, who is, you know, a, a, a big, big Star Wars fan. And, um, and the, the level of anticipation outside was really matched by, by fear that the film was going to let him down. What it, I mean, it was that thing, but he really wanted it to be good. And he was really terrified that the prospect that it might not be. And there was something brilliant being in a... I did feel like that, that was a feeling that was... I mean, many of the people in the audience, they wanted it to be. And I, rem, I remember so clearly you and I seeing Phantom Menace and seeing, you know, the thing came up a long time ago in the galaxy, far, far away, and everyone went, hooray! And then there was the scroll about George's tax returns, which no one cared about, and then there was Jar Jar Binks, and you could just feel the will... To, to, the will to like it sapping away. We'll we'll come back to this because there is so much stuff. However, I want to talk before, well, and we'll do some other movies yeah. after three thirty. Just want to talk about Grandma and yes. Sisters because uh, we talk we have talked about them and we had guests uh, on the last two programs and they're not in the top ten. Grandma probably because it won't make it. Sisters because of the release system that yeah. Mark was telling us about. First of all, on Grandma, this is uh, Jelly Lily Tomlin who came in the program a couple of weeks ago. Jelly Morgan's has been in touch. Soon to be the Reverend Doctor. Looking forward to joining... Jelly Morgans. Jelly Morgans. Not Jelly Old Morgans, the no. famous jazz piano player. It's Jelly. Anyway, looking forward to joining... Did you get that? Looking forward to jelly joining... Jelly Old Mor... Oh, never mind. Looking forward to joining Clergy Corner in the summer. So that's where Jelly... That's what Jelly's doing. Yeah. This is part of very mill. Could you say instantly hello to Liz Clutterbuck, the Reverend Liz Clutterbuck, who you and I met, which was a great pleasure. Which, which it was a wonderful thing. On Grandma, there are so few films about women's lives that are funny and moving. While the film is essentially about raising the money for an abortion, the film is not about abortion, and I found this refreshing. The characters and relationships were utterly believable and all flawed and made the film all the more powerful. Grandma is never preachy, and the film certainly doesn't in any way demonise men. The only baddie in the film is Sage, who's the granddaughter, uh, her boyfriend, who, also fitting with my research, is himself a portrayal of the lad culture among men in their 20s, which is becoming increasingly common, particularly among university students. Is he in his 20s or he's a, he's a teenager? She's 18, I think he's about the same age. And rather than just making me angry at the character, this scene just cracked me up. As a young woman working in two male-dominated spheres, which is academia and the church, <laughs> the film gave me real hope that listening to women's experiences will indeed continue to become more mainstream and no longer just an afterthought or a source of slapstick comedy. That's a brilliant email. Thank you very much. And how very well argued it is. Um, uh, Haida Ali in Birmingham. Grandma, decent movie, but not without significant flaws. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but the irritable old coot of a grandma felt such a cliche. We've seen the same character minus the lesbianism a hundred times before. I just couldn't get past the preachiness of the whole thing. Okay, can I say that I thank you for that email. I completely disagree with you on both points. Firstly, 
I felt it was the the antithesis of preachy. What was smart about it was that it was a film which absolutely accepted a woman's right to choose, absolutely accepted, um, uh, you know, uh, alternative lifestyle decisions, absolutely did all of that and never felt the need to lecture about it, just took it as a given, which I think is good. Second thing is, I disagree with the grouchy old grandma being a cliche. As I said in my review, this could have been a film called Bad Grandma, which would have been all those cliches in which, you know, she was grouchy, but, you know, almost like like one of the, uh, uh, what they called, you know, the jackass movies or something like that. It it could have been that, but it, it so much isn't that film. It's specifically a character which was written, as you can see with Lily Tomlin in mind, and it was very funny that when the director, the writer-director first gave her the script, she was kind of unsure about it because she said, well, you know, isn't she's a bit, she's a bit grumpy. And then he, and he sort of went, well, you know, mm. she went, okay, fine. And she, and I think it's, I don't think it is cliche. I think it's the antithesis of that. Thank you for writing in and I appreciate the comment, but I, I completely disagree. A couple with on sisters just before news yes. and sport. Uh, ben Matthews just came out of seeing Sisters with my lovely fiance on a wet Monday afternoon. The film more than passed the six laugh test and in fact created a bout of uncontrollable laughter that rang around the screening, left everyone gasping for breath and caused my fiance to steam her glasses up through laughing. It was in case you were unsure, the scene, I think we could say the scene with the music box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The last 20 minutes did feel like a postscript. However, it had earned the benefit of the doubt by that point and I can see no other way to wrap it up. Uh, Tom Edwards... Um, I have actually never seen. I, love, Tina... I can just say I love the fact that we're not even bothering to not spot the scene with the music box. That's fine. That's okay. Well, I think that's no. It's in the trailer. I mean, boy, is go. it in the trailer. I've yeah. actually never seen Tina Fey and Amy Poehler together in anything before. Though I'm a big fan of Miss Poehler in Parks and Recreation, literally the greatest show ever. But wow, they are clearly an amazing double act. Even from the first scene in which they are together, it is clear that they love working with each other. And every time they're on screen, I was smiling broadly. I loved the early montage scene in their old rooms, loved their dance routines. They were wonderful. And their Star Wars parody is fun too, which we mentioned uh, on last week's programme and played you a clip which you can see online. So you can expect to see Sisters in the top ten next week. Yes, because it's it's done the, you know, the eight-day opening week or whatever however you refer to it, because it opened on Saturday. So that's why we don't have it this week. In the next half hour... Okay, so in the next half hour, we'll do uh, Daddy's Home, we will do Sherpa, we will do Snoopy the movie, and probably some more correspondence. Uh, so, uh, we, I'll, I'll do TV Movie of the Week in just a moment, but oh, do, yes. do, do some brand new uh, movies, because it's all been about Star Wars, which is kind of going to reflect the way your local cinema is okay. going to be, but just do some other well, stuff. Well, let's do, so out on the 21st is Snoopy and Charlie Brown, the Peanuts movie, which is um, uh, a CG animated uh, uh, cartoon. Uh, a CG animation, obviously adapted from uh, Charles M. Schultz's beloved comic strips, uh, co-written by Craig and Brian Schultz, who are respectively son and grandson of Charles, and uh, using archive recordings of Bill Melendez. Um, basically, it's this, it's elements of the stories that you would know before, and the film is trying to walk a tightrope between, on the one hand, uh, honouring the spirit and feel of the original, on the other hand, giving it a slightly new and slightly updated uh, 21st century twist. However, it's, it's the stories that you know in essence. Here's a clip. I can't believe I'm about to talk to the little red-haired girl. It's moments like this when you need your faithful friend. Yep, <laughs> if there's one person you want by your side at a moment like this, it's your loyal dog.
Hello? She said hello. You get the general sense. I do. Um, so, I mean, it would be tempting, it would be easy to sort of take something like this and then update it and turn it into something that lost the charm of the original. It, there, there, there's been a certain amount of debate about how much one should or shouldn't update the kind of uh, Americana of the original in order to make it contemporary for uh, for a modern audience. There is very little updating going on. The main problem, well, the main, the main issue is when you have uh, this CG animation, on the one hand, they want to sort of retain the, you know, just the very straight lines, the sort of flat 2D of the strip. On the other hand, they want to make it something which is going to play to a modern audience. So you have a, a sort of bizarre playoff between when you have Snoopy going into fantasies about fighting the Red Baron, obviously, which then we get, you know, 3D dogfights and all that sort of stuff. And the rest of the time, what you get is the characters as you would, exactly as you would recognise them from the drawings, but with a strange spherical edge. So rather than having round heads, their heads are, are, you know, appear sort of be, to be slightly spherical. Were well, there I mean? 10, 20, 30, 40, 40 50, 50 or more? Holly Red Baron was I, running I, up the score. Running up the score. And many men died. Right, many men tried. And hit that of Germany. Of Germany, yes. So, um, no, there weren't, incidentally. Uh, oh. So, it's, it's in terms of its animation, it's north of South Park, which is, you know, just <laughs> cut out heads. And it's south of the adventures of Tintin, which is, uh, you know, uh, you remember it was all sort of completely motion capture. One of the things that lets it down is that some of the, the poppy songs are uh, cr- rather cringe inducing. and But. It has a weird, slightly archaic, actually not slightly archaic, downright old-fashioned quality to it, which you can feel is pulling against the desire to make it into something which will, you know, engage a modern audience. And it it doesn't always pull it together. That said, it's kind of sweet, and it does follow the principle that in the end what the what the original strips I and mean, actually indeed the you know the original tv specials were all about was it wasn't it wasn't laughter it was sort of wry smiling i mean it's funny to sort of sell something now on the basis of it's it's wry and slightly observational if you were if, if you read any of the did you ever read like i'd be the book of you know it was a dark and stormy night and you'd read it over and over you wouldn't laugh you'd smile wryly and mm-hmm. often inside so there is some of that obviously it is augmented by sort of as i said the 3d flying sequences and uh, and and some musical sequences which which really got on my nerves a bit but it's i was worried that it was going to be a total letdown and it wasn't that it's just kind of sweet John Castle on Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Firstly, this film was rubbish. Oh, okay. I don't say this lightly, but it was. I've never been so bored in my life. A cinema full of children, not one laugh. A lot of them seem to want... Can I just say, doesn't that tie into exactly what I just said? It's not about laughing, it's about Riley smiling. And maybe that's not what that audience would want. To smile Riley. Can you smile Riley if you're five? Probably can. Yeah, a lot of them seem to want to spend a lot of time going back and forwards to the toilet. Yeah, Usually, <laughs> I get awkward. extremely irritated by this flagrant breach of the code, but in this case, uh, I can't blame them at all. That was Jack Warner's measure of how good a movie was. How many times he had to go for a wee whilst watching it. John Lynn in Chicago. Um, 
My wife and I saw the Peanuts movie just before Thanksgiving here in the United States. Having grown up with the original comic strips and TV specials, I was sceptical that a CGI version of the franchise would fit with Schultz's vision. I was thrilled to see it was faithful, as well as a very affectionate nod to the best Peanuts material that came before it. In a way, what you're saying about the new Star Wars movie's faithfulness to the original could apply here. If your listeners and their kids need something to see between multiple Star Wars servings, this is a wonderful way to cleanse your palate. Uh, just one more from That's a nice phrase. Paul Huntingford. Given the recent mania for rebooting old TV shows and cartoons, I wasn't thrilled to hear Charlie Brown and Friends were going to be the latest characters from my childhood to be updated and CGI'd. I also had to suppress a shudder when I heard that Blue Sky Studios were the brains behind the revival of Snoopy and Company. Not a fan of their Ice Age franchise and its over-the-top slapstick. I need not have worried, however, as I thankfully left the cinema with my old-fashioned sensibilities unblemished and okay. intact. Yeah, good. Yes, the animation was updated and slicker than before, but still somehow retained all the charm and simplicity of the original TV specials. Very good. Uh, TV movie of the week. Uh, in fact, it's not that. It's Christmas TV movie of the fortnight. Yes. Uh, all these films available on non-subscription television from tomorrow through to the 1st of January. Uh, John McBrain says, well, it's a list of uh, heavy on family films, computer animation. For me, amongst the Christmas classics, Duel stands out as a film that's a bit different. On the Horror Channel. It punches way above its weight thanks to the brilliant direction of a young Spielberg. I've also wanted to watch Telstar, and I think I remember Mark yeah, giving it. Yeah, yeah you really should. Really good. Diana James says, way too many to choose from. It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas are true greats, of course. Arthur Christmas, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and Mary Poppins are always a hit in this house. Hard to choose. I I think if Mark doesn't refrain from choosing so many good options, he'll pick Poppins. If he, sorry, if he doesn't refrain from choosing... So, he'll pick Poppins is the key bit. I'm sure there's a double negative in there, but I can't find my way around it. Uh, Joseph Lear, Raiders of the Lost Ark. For me, Ed Shardlow, It's a Wonderful Life, obviously. And then Mark will say, it's time to give Diana a critical re-evaluation because that's on. <laughs> no, it's uh, not. Well. It's got to be Splash, says Jonathan Sheriff, the film that put Hanks on the map. What is our Christmas TV movie of the fortnight? Well, I'm going to go for, and it's interesting you said Christmas TV movie. I'm going to go for Behind the Candelabra on BBC Two, Monday the 28th, which was, I mean, technically a TV movie, although, of course, here theatrically released. Didn't, did... Uh Michael Douglas come who was it that came on Michael the program? Douglas was, was on, Michael yes, Douglas came yes. on the program to discuss it and I mean it's an interesting uh it's an interesting Christmas TV movie firstly because you know most of the time Liberace was lit up like a Christmas tree anyway it wasn't yes. sort of baubles and spangles and all that sort of stuff but also it's a it's a funny movie but with a with a with a hint of dark weird creepiness behind it I mean I remember enjoying it enormously uh, when it first came out and thinking what, what great performances it had but then you know thinking actually it is oddly enough the perfect treat for a Christmas movie because it is as spangly and as glittery and as sparkly but also kind of weird and strange at the same time because there is this whole bizarre thing going on in it about surgery. Oh, the plastic surgery. About, about plastic Rob surgery. Rob Lowe. <laughs> Rob Lowe is the person who is unable to... And there's a, there is a fantastic line... That I'm, this, OK, if you don't want to know this, plot spoiler. but um, It doesn't in, matter. In which Liberace, having had his latest... His latest... He says to Rob Lowe's character, he says... I can't close my eyes. And Rob Lowe's character says, that's fine. You'll always be able to see people reacting to how fabulous you look. Um, a couple of... Before we go back to the reviews, yeah, um, a sad story. Oh, OK. This is from Mel. Right. I had planned on emailing in to celebrate my one-year witiversary, but life, it turns out, had other plans. This weekend, 
After nine years and one month together, my long-term partner, who got me hooked on this podcast last Christmas, ended our relationship. This was quite out of the blue, and as you can imagine, I am devastated, heartbroken, and all the other clichés to describe this horrendous feeling. I also finished my current job this Friday, uh, or today if you read this out, uh, to start a new job in January, which I was very proud of, but now feels scary and impossible to be excited about. As a result of my situation, I am currently rejecting all things Christmas as I could not feel less like celebrating. Therefore, I have no interest in Christmas films or even the films normally on TV over Christmas, such as Ghostbusters, Poppins, Indiana Jones, as they were all films we enjoyed together. Indiana Jones. What? You always said Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. That's really to the heart of the uh, the subject of the email. Please can you ask your audience for film suggestions that do not feature Christmas, romance or falling in or out of love. I need films <laughs> with strong women coping without men that will help motivate me to start my new job and new life on my own. Well, Mad Max Fury Road is out on... Um, Perfect. On DVD. I'd say go see Star Wars. Yeah, actually, isn't that interesting that both of those are sort of future fantasy movies which absolutely... Fulfill that remit. We're sorry to hear about that, uh, Mel. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I there's mean, a, there's a TV thing and there's a movie thing for you to go and see. Yeah. Plus, some advice from Tom in Wandsworth. With Christmas approaching, I thought this might be a suitably cheerful message. I'm not sure if you'll remember, I wrote to you back in March, having been dumped by text message. And to hear you read out my email made all the heartache worthwhile. Really? If anyone wants to know how to recover from a breakup, other than just recover from a breakup, then I can highly recommend firing a fart gun at the person who dumped you on national radio, which is what we did. So, Mel, this is for the person who dumped you. Do another one. Go on, for good measure. Just absolutely... It's died! No! Oh, is it? It has died, and that was Simon. A surprise late one there, as sort of happens this time of year. Anyway, Tom concludes, My friends and family had tried to make me feel better but failed. However, when Mark said, it will all be fine, then I paid attention. And it turns out, as always, he was right. Just one month later... I met Claire. She and I have now been together for seven months and I'm the happiest I've ever been. Claire is supremely intelligent, adorably thoughtful and absolutely stunning. She inspires me every day and I love her. I must really love her, in fact, because she hates horror films. <laughs> and yet we're still going out. That's how wonderful she is. So I wanted to say thank you. Merry Christmas to you and Claire and any of your listeners that may be currently be fe who are feeling heartbroken. Remember, as the good doctor says, it'll all be fine unless Claire dumps me, in which case... Can you... Okay, very good. So, Mel, there's some advice. Tom, thank you for can getting I, can in I, touch. Can I just say to Mel, incidentally, um, as we said before, it will all be fine. It genuinely will all be fine. And I speak as somebody who has, you know, had uh, similar experiences. And you know what? It will all be fine because the right person... This is this this has paved the way for a, for a better thing, for a better future. There is a long conversation. There. I sound, I, I actually started going into... You should do a self-help. No, I started going into the song from the end of uh, Monsters, Inc. Put you that should... thing back where she came from and it helped us to find a better tomorrow today. You should You should do a self-help book. No, Mark's, I shouldn't. Uh, romantic tips. Don't take the date to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Unless... Actually, but that's not true because then I ended up 
with somebody who would absolutely love that. There, you go. So, you know, there we go. And that's the thing. In the end, it all works out. What all else right. is out there? There's a Linda out there for everybody. Right. What else is out? There is, uh, oh, Daddy's Home. So Daddy's Home, uh, we're, we're sort of bringing forward. It's opening in, in, a little, in, in, in a little while's time. So it's basically another of those festive comedies, which isn't quite as funny as it ought to be, but isn't wholly without laughs at all. You've probably seen the trailer. So the story is uh, Will Ferrell and uh, Mark Wahlberg. Will Ferrell is a stepdad who is attempting to raise kids who basically don't find him uh, charming and or, or any, and don't find him to be dad. And he's doing needy, difficult, awkward Will Ferrell. It then turns out that the actual father of the children is going to be dropping by for a visit. He's played by Mark Wahlberg. If you've seen the trailers, you know the thing that he gets off the... He gets off the plane at the airport and he's Mark Wahlberg and he's got the jeans and he's got the boots and so the guy says, yeah, that that guy is better than you in every single way. And then it becomes a sort of rivalry between which one of them can get the kids. Like the Mark Wahlberg is the guy who's got the exciting motorbike and he's the tearaway and the roughy and all the rest of it. Will Ferrell is the person who sits there and makes the sandwiches and makes the lunchboxes and, 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 and he's uptight and difficult. Now, the premise, I have to say, filled me rather with dread and the trailer um, made me think, oh, blimey, it's going to be another one of those Will Ferrell comedies that I just don't get on with at all i don't think it's good however i did count five laughs so it fell below the six laugh test but i did laugh five times and actually that's not bad going uh it like anything else it's an utter contrivance and it's a film which exists purely for the purpose of a single gag which has more than run its course by the end of the first half hour and incidentally obviously you know how the whole thing is going to pan out and play out but there are five moments in it that I laughed. Not enough to make it a six-laugh uh, comedy hit, but certainly more than I have done. In, in, there have been many other comedies this year in which th- there have been zero laughs achieved. Uh, OK, I'm just gathering a, a, a final blast of Star Wars before we finish. Anything else you want to mention? Uh, yeah, so can I do a Sherpa quickly, which is yeah. a documentary, um, a very interesting documentary by Jennifer Pedham. And uh, it's, you know, with this year we had Everest, which was sort of re- a reconstruction of, you know, of a, 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 mount, a tragedy on Everest, which very much sort of concentrated on the tourists and the guides. In the case of uh, Sherpa, it's a documentary which, when they started making it, was about the uh, increasingly strained relationships between the uh, indigenous guides and the tour companies and the tourists who, uh, you know, who. Um, climb Everest because the fact is that the guides are are paid much less than anybody else they take much greater risks in 2013 there was a brawl between them and tourists who they felt were being disrespectful in 2014 when they were there filming um at which point um the the Sherpa leader was about to become the first person to ever summit Everett 22 times Everett 22 times there was a terrible tragedy 16 people were killed and in the wake of that, what happens is that the guides decide to strike. And what the document what the documentary team suddenly find themselves in the middle of is a sort of defining moment in which people who have really been treated in a way which, which doesn't in any doesn't in any way recognize the huge risk, the huge efforts that they have that they are making, suddenly go, okay. This we're going to draw a line, and what then happens is that relationships between them, between the climbers, and between the climbing companies become increasingly fractious as everybody attempts to sort of pass around blame. 
One of the things that's fascinating about the film is that, firstly, I mean, it's it, it's very well made. It's made absolutely from sort of from, from ground level, and it's a film made by somebody who understands the area, understands the subject, you know, knows what they're doing. Uh, Ferbatashi, who is the the Sherpa, who is the Sherpa leader on whom the original documentary was going to uh, was going to focus presents this sort of very, very interesting and dignified air, talking about his what his profession is, what it is that he does, how his family feel about it. And then as this terrible situation starts to unfold, we see the the sort of the typical idea of the guides as basically being, you know, subservient, being completely overturned. And it becomes a film about workers taking control of the workplace. And it it and as that happens, there are some things that are said by some of the tourists which are which are really jaw-dropping, saying that, you know, what they're doing is bullying. One person even uses the word terrorism, which is which is just unbelievable. And it becomes a very, very interesting and compassionate look at people working in the most dangerous service industry in the world and coming together in the wake of an appalling event to say, OK, we are now standing together to demand some form of change. I thought it was a very interesting documentary. Stephen Bennett's listening in Brownsburg, Indiana. Yeah, Indiana. Listening from Indiana and originally from Basingstoke, Hampshire. Do you say Indiana wants me? Said it like Simon when first arrived. Not now. Okay. Stuart Bell, dear red leader and gold leader. I think I must be the only person on the planet who didn't love Star Wars. Okay. Okay. Lack of contrivance has never been a watchword, the Star Wars series, but here it was taken to new levels of lazy plotting coupled with minimal backstory. A petulant teenager of a villain and one of the most wooden heroines in recent memory. We have a film which has all the tropes of a Star Wars film, but none of the heart. And worst of all, it's boring. I found myself checking my watch at least five times. Soulless, cynical and a massive disappointment. Okay. Hang on. Tom Rowland, sorry I found The Force Awakens disappointing. From the rolling preamble text, I had a sinking feeling. It was clear they weren't going to try anything new. Abrams is to character what Lucas is to modern CGI. No nuance or interesting interactions between characters, rehashing old features of other films. Impressive moments, but they felt just that. They were there to be impressive and did not feel there to nourish the cinematic environment. Gung-ho, macho, single-level characters charging around like Starship Troopers without the political satire. Did you find any of that to be the case? No. But other opinions are out there. No, that's that's fine. And, and incidentally, thank you for from those for putting your head above the parapet. We are being... all different. <laughs> I'm not. Dean in Salford. Listening to the advice. But how many people got that joke? A lot. <laughs> Listening to the advice just given by J.J. Abrams, I had decided to watch Star Wars myself on opening day first to make the judgment for my three children. So we're back on the certification. Okay. My children are eight, ten, and thirteen. I have concluded I must do it again. It's so much more enjoyable watching a film without Junior saying, who's that? Why did they do that? Secondly, it is absolutely suitable for all three of our children, notwithstanding the, if you have older siblings, you see see stuff earlier. So for his 8, 10 and 13-year-olds, fine. Episodes 4, 5 and 6 will be watched beforehand, thus making the key points of the film uh, to bring them to tears and laughter and insert other emotion here that doesn't give away the plot. Even mum's going to go because she loves Harrison Ford. And I've not been transported back to the 10-year-old version of me like this before ever. Steve Damerel, it should be renamed The Fun Awakens. Loads of humour, emotion, drama, thrills, all the things that were missing from the prequels. And above all... Actual characters, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega are fantastic. They are good. They re- we, we can't say this enough. They are really good. Although our previous correspondent. Mm. Thank you, JJ and Lawrence Kasdan, who uh, was involved in the writing of this, for giving back to us the Star Wars that we know and love. 
Uh, Ed, such the first 40 minutes to an hour are fantastic and I struggle to find fault with them. However, the film then begins to struggle under the weight of references to the original trilogy and some of the original cast do feel a bit shoehorned in. Overall, the feeling I left the cinema with was meh and I didn't feel that it had deserved some of the glowing reviews it has received. It is certainly better than the prequels but doesn't live up to Empire Strikes Back or A New Hope in my uh, in my view. I also felt that... As though it was attempting to build a new universe too quickly with plot strands and characters picked up and dropped in in a way similar to Avengers Age of Ultron. Oh, it's much better than Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, I laughed, I cried, I loved it. As Alex uh, Connor says right from the opening text crawl, it felt like a Star Wars film. The opening shot captures the sheer scale and wonder that the original films inspired and the film continues in this fashion. There'll be many parallels between episodes four and seven yep. thematically and visually to call this film a retread of old ground, as some have, would be a disservice to its director. J.J. Abrams does an exceptional job of remixing the old and endearing us to the new. Thank you very much indeed for all the many, many uh, uh, emails that we've had. Uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Uh, next, we're on on Christmas Day, Christmas lunchtime at one o'clock. Ron Howard is our special guest. What more could you want? Well, uh, so movie of the week, is it show is it Peanuts? What? Yeah, Star Wars. Star Wars. I just said movie of the week is a Star Wars film. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Uh, we're back on Christmas Day. Now it's Drive. Well, I think we kind of did reasonably there, and I don't think anyone can possibly object to anything that we said at any stage. OK, I hope not. And um, and, and and if you did, can I just say it wasn't for want of No, trying. no, no. If you did find anything that we said in any way a spoiler-tastic, then you're wrong. Just to <laughs> say that. Um, Joe Hodgson. Yes. I'm mildly perturbed by Simon's apparent control of my generic listening device. Upon firing the fart gun uh, in my general direction, Simon's declaration of it's died, which it did momentarily, proceeded to shut down my device, <laughs> a state from which it appears recalcitrant to return from. Reluctant, really. Anyway, does this add to the list of wittertainment miracles, albeit a rather negative one? Well, if I can get it going again. <laughs> there you go. Wonderful. Um... Do you want to say hello to Rachel Worrell? Hello, Rachel Worrell. I'm a few weeks behind on the podcast and do occasionally listen to it whilst falling asleep. As we know what marvellous soporific qualities you all have. So this uh, may have been addressed already, but I'm writing in indignation about love, actually. Yes. Mark must be so busy wrapping his presents that he's forgotten just how stuffed with white male privilege and sexism this film is. OK. Or maybe... We were just dazzled by the awesomeness of Emma Thompson crying to both sides well, now. Well, can I just say, before, I, you, before you go any, fur, any further, that is entirely possible. I know Richard Curtis is witty and Love Actually is frothy and all twinkly and Christmassy, but having just rewatched half of this film, I'm aghast. All the men are bosses, all the women barely speak, or if they do, it's usually to fawn, simper or titillate. Harassment goes unremarked. In fact, Natalie's reward is to be sacked. Women call other women fat when they're not. They're sisters, daughters, lovers, mothers, but they're not bosses, independent women, women with a life away from the men that they're after or who are after them. They have no agency. Almost everyone is white and middle class, which I know is pretty standard for Richard Curtis. I just don't remember all his other female characters being so powerless. Ugh. I don't think I can bear to watch the other half. Having said that, you're still my favourite flagship film show. OK. I mean, one of, one of the... I'm going to answer this seriously. One of the strange things um, about watching movies and, and film criticism is that occasionally you can watch something and you can, you can really, really like it, you can really enjoy it, and then somebody goes, but didn't you notice that? And then they reel off a whole lot of things about the film that you go, 
oh, right, but right, well, why didn't I notice that? Why didn't I feel that way about it? And I'm not going to say for one minute that those things are wrong. I mean, it's a, I, I generally don't think, I mean, I have to go back and think my way through the movie. I, it's absolutely true that Richard Curtis' world is a particular, I mean, this has been commented on so much, you know, he lived in a version of Notting Hill that exists only in the in the head of Richard Curtis. Um I have generally not found him to be a misogynist. In fact, I've, I, that, I, I think he's, I think he and his characters are pretty benevolent. That said, there is a howling misstep of a scene in the boat that rocked, which you know, which is a kind of a real sort of old seventies gag that that just it's astonishing. That, see previous podcasts. See, pre- pre- see previous podcasts for details. In the particular case of Love Actually, I feel the same way, that I haven't thought uh, those things, and it may be that I've given Richard Curtis a pass, because when I first saw Love Actually, I didn't like it. It wasn't those things I didn't like it. I just thought it was too long and too schmaltzy and too sentimental, and what he really needed was Roger Michel to come in and make it into a 90-minute movie. But having seen Love Actually so many times now, and uh, having sort of, a, I mean, another example would be An Officer and a Gentleman. I think politically, An Officer and a Gentleman is just... All over the shop, and well, you mean you disagree with it? Um, well, I would think so, yes. Mm. But I love that film, and 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 you know, way to go, Paula. And 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 I can't. There's there's nothing I can do to. So, and in, in a way, this should be a good thing because you you know you always say, well, do you just does you do you just bring your ideology to the table and just go, well, this matches up with my ideas? And I think I'm I don't I don't do that. And the proof of it is, I love an officer and a gentleman. And I really like Love Actually of all those things. I'd have to go back and look. Maybe at watch it back, yeah, and see. What I will watch it because it's Christmas, so I will watch it again. And then the bit when Emma Thompson goes into the room and cries, I'll just be in floods at both that scene and just at the general brilliance of Emma Thompson, who can do no wrong. Now, there's something else that you wanted to review. I do believe. Oh well, let's but, just very, we'll do DVD of the year fairly shortly. Okay. But anyway, just uh, one more. Well, brief just just very quickly brief, to say. Brief, I mean, on the subject of uh, Richard Curtis, there's a film called Sparks and Embers, which is it's a story which has the beginning end of the affair structure of Blue Valentine. We see uh, two uh, former lovers. <clears throat> played by uh, Chris Marshall and um, uh, Annalise, uh, Annalise Hesme, and they meet on the South Bank, and then it cuts back to their first meeting, uh, in a, and they get stuck in an elevator, and he's just been fired from his record company job, and she turns out to be the consultant who did the firing. And then it cuts backwards and forwards between the end of the affair when they're meeting up, having broken up on the South Bank, and the beginning when they they hate each other and they're grouching in the lift. And there's one bit in it in which he says, maybe we're in one of those Japanese horror movies, you know, when when everyone gets stuck in lifts and there's all corridors. Well, no, you're not in a Japanese horror movie. What you're in is a slightly sort of naff movie that wants to <clears throat> meld that Blue Valentine structure to the South Banky charm of Richard Curtis. And I mean, the, both the performers are very likeable. The script just is too full of cliche and contrivance for the, for the thing to ever gel. And what it did make me realise is that that stuff that Richard Curtis makes look totally effortless is not totally effortless at all. It's actually really hard. There's a very thin line between romantic comedy, being cute and touching and affectionate, and just being a bit whimsy and a little bit you know and a little bit cliched it's not that there is nothing to like in sparks and embers it's just that there there is too much cliche and contrivance for it to take flight and believe me i am a sucker 
for Richard Curtis, but other people attempting to do Curtis, it often reminds you just how good what he does is. Sorry, that was a very, very contorted sentence, but you, you got, I, I you got we, the I general gist of it. Yes, absolutely. Um, Sarah Anderson, while I was getting work, ready for work this morning, I listened to last week's podcast. I particularly enjoyed the story of the cat who chose your dulcet tones to snooze to. Yes. As the story reached its denouement, my cat, called Toto, appeared from, <laughs> a, uh, exactly, appeared from a hiding place behind the curtains, sat fun. down beside me and promptly started purring. Oh, this may not sound like an odd thing for a cat to do, but you have to understand that Toto's misanthropy makes Sartre look positively positive. <laughs> I just say that sentence alone makes <laughs> our listeners extraordinary. Usually he will leave a room if I walk into it, especially if there's no food in the offing. So I think we have to conclude that it was Toto's way of expressing solidarity with the other listener's cat and his desire to join Pet's parlour, which prompted this display of almost affection. Another wittertainment miracle. That's fantastic. Now, we're about to do um, DVD of the week of the year. Yes. Uh, and so Could you just explain what this is? This is basically the best DVD of the year from the, the, the list of, of... No, the best DVD of the year. It's best DVD of the week of the year. So basically what I've got in front of me is a list yes. of all the movies that we've done over I'll the course of the year. But Henry... That's right, isn't it? I'm not complicating that. Thank you. Henry in Chalton Kamhardi. Blimey, you're being different. I was, you always say that, and I'm not. I'm just getting on with the show, and you're turning around and talking to other people for no reason. Ready? Here's Henry in Chalton Kamhardi. I was listening to the podcast last week whilst preparing a delicious meal for my wife, Charlotte. I noticed to my disappointment that all the garlic had been used up and not replaced. I went to the next room to chastise Charlotte in a raised voice for this domestic oversight, just at the moment that the DVD of the week music started playing. da 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 dum boom the comedy effect after the music <laughs> made it impossible for me to be angry and retained marital bliss in our home. This is the power of the DVD of the week music. I think Mark's going to choose Mission Impossible, by the way, as he quite liked it and there's not much else out there. Anyway, so Henry, well, first of all, maybe you should have replaced the garlic yourself and yep. not assume that Charlotte should have done it in the first place. Exactly. So you should not have gone in with a raised voice for any reason. Yeah. 70s Meantime, if you're feeling angry about anything in the world, this is for you. Someone's someone's been playing around with our music. Mr. Mayo threw open his window. You there, boy, he cried. What day is this? Oh, it is Christmas Day, sir. Oh, you're not going to do the that, boy. really, are you? Actually, the boy now sounds older than any mind. He does. A single tear rolled down Mr Mayo's cheek as a smile began to stretch across his face. Oh, blessed day! He laughed in the voice of an old Archbishop of Canterbury. The spirits have shown me the error of my ways. Dear boy, hurry along to Mr Kermode's DVD of the week shop and bring me that copy of The Dance of Reality hanging in the window. In fact, bring me every copy. This year, there will be Hodorowsky for all. (laughs) It's the last one of 2015, and to celebrate, Mark's going to be picking the DVD from this year that would make the best Christmas gift. What choice from 2015 would you most want to find under your tree, and what will Mark go for in DVD of the week of the year? Dave Parsons says Zardoz because it's the biggest turkey in the shop. Very good. Robert King and Tiny Tim looked aghast at the DVD of Zardoz and said, Please, sir, can I have some less? (laughs) 
I like that. That's very good. Dan Doody. Really? Mark will fret about having to choose either The Falling or Inside Out, both of which are in his top five of the year, or so I believe, from my slavish listening to the Wittertainment this year. However, if he picks one over the other, it will be Inside Out, though I suspect he may urge listeners to buy both. Uh, yeah, that'll do. Oh, no, hang on. Here's Thomas Edwards. Definitely Song of the Sea for me. A beautiful, moving film that had me welling up. Wonderful stuff. What is our DVD of the week of the year? DVD of the week of the year is Grace of My Heart because it was unavailable for such a long time and it is such a wonderful movie that was overlooked when it first came out in uh, 1996. It somehow got lost in the slipstream of That Thing You Do. And particularly with the Carol King musical now being around, people do need to to track this film down and check it out. You know, we were I was talking about uh, the Beach Boys film Love and Mercy, which is coming out on DVD very soon as well. That makes a superb double bill with Grace of My Heart. But Grace of My Heart is one of those movies that you cannot believe became a cult movie. It's like, how did it not? Why was it not a smash hit? Why was it not the top of everyone's list of best films I don't know of why. the year that year? Why? I, well. Why was that? I don't know. Why? I, I don't know. Why don't you know? I can't that? tell you. Why can't you I tell don't me? know what the answer Why is. Can't you tell Stop me that? it. It's really aggravating. Why is it aggravating? You know when you did that that voice sounds younger than the old. That just reminded me of Love and Death and you know Old New Hampkin who was younger than Young New Hampkin. I knew there was something wrong with it, but every time I said it, people smacked me. So you know, after a while, you just stop. I love that voice you do. Is it right? Is it? Shut it. That's Bob Hoskins, that is. I thought it was more Ray Winston. Oh, Ray Winston. All right, but was it Ray Winston in Noah when he goes, it's going to be a big flood? Shut it. (laughs) I think. Anyway, but shut it in a happy Christmas kind of way. Yeah. Anyway, Grace of My Heart. That music now has just given me such a feeling of love for everybody. Hasn't it? You know, you? you know, you know what would be brilliant. Happy Christmas, everybody! If Star Wars: The Force Awakened opened with that, it said, "Come and said it said long ago in a galaxy far, far away," and then that came on. That would be like everyone would love each other. Yes, obviously not there and then, but they would. In general, they'd <laughs> leave the cinema and they'd love everybody then. that they saw. You're such a North Londoner. Really? Yeah. It's got to do North London. It's your Shut it! Shut it! Anyway, thanks so much, Steve, for listening. You so we're slag. we're back on Christmas Day with our uh, special Christmas edition of the show. It's like Do you think on Christmas Day, will we refer back to the Star Wars chat? Yeah, well, you know, yeah, that'll sound really weird because we won't know anything about Star Wars then. Because we won't have seen it. It's an all-request with entertainment. People choosing their favourite bits of the show. That's New Year's Day. No, or request with entertainment. Oh, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. That's Christmas, Christmas Day. Day. Then best of the guess is on uh, the second. Yeah, best of, of the guess is the one that I'm not in. That's right. I just go every now and then. I go. This is best of the guests. But there's lots of music, and also Ron Howard talking about um, the heart of the sea. Yes, with a big splashy whale. I thought he said something about the heart of the city. I thought he was talking about the Nick Lowe single, which was stiff by one. I was... might just go now and listen to the Nick Lowe Christmas album because oh. that's a nice thing to do. It looks like Christmas. By the way, Christmas at the airport. Mark, happy Christmas to you and all your family. But we're going to do the full range. Go on. (laughs) Robin, the editor, just said a sprout-related comment, and I. What did he say? He just said sprouts. Do sprouts make you fart? Oh yes. Do they? (laughs) That's the. Do they? Is that true? I do believe that it's true. Why don't you do an experiment (laughs) and report back? Eat a pile of sprouts. Anyway, so... And then see whether you turn into Johnny Fartpants, uh, Pierre Pompey Trousers, or Hans Honky Hose. We wish everybody a very happy Christmas, and uh, we'll see you on Christmas Day. Thank you so much. 
on digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.